0: And it's time for another female first, which means we are once again thrilled to be joined by the amazing, fantastic Eves. Welcome, Eves. Hello, hello. Hi, how are you? How have you been?
3: I am doing very well. I don't know what to say. It's hot outside. (laughs) I'm trying (laughs) to stay, you know, outside as much as possible without melting, Mm -hmm. which has been possible so far. So I'm excited about that. But, you know. Wow, that's, that's cool. a skill. How have you yeah. been pulling that off? <laughs> Pretty well, you know. I mean, staying in the shade a lot. I was, I was like outside in the car yesterday, saying how if this feels impossible. Like I am not even that close to the equator, and <laughs> <laughs> the sun is that far away from me, and it's this hot. It Doesn't really make any sense, but that's good. <laughs> you know, I was gonna, I was gonna say I prefer this to being cold, but I, I feel like that also that has a little bit more meaning because of climate change, you know, right. like things are going in a certain direction. So I had to double, I had to think about that again for a second.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, true, true. <laughs> I've been like the opposite. I prefer the cold and I've gone outside very, very little, um, which makes me sad because I do love going outside. Uh, yeah. but I, I mean, I'll be out there for like a minute and I, oh no, what is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> go back inside. <laughs> <laughs> does not compute. <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm. What about you, Samantha? What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah.
2: Well, I'm on the same lines with Eve. I don't want to say it too loudly either, (laughs) because I feel like when we do, uh, especially in Georgia, the climates really test you. Like, yeah, Um, you think you want to be warm, but but as we speak, I'm a little cool right now to the point that I'm like, where's my blanket, which I have um, all, all year long in my office. So, you know. But yes, it's definitely been um, one of those times where it's like, yeah, but I don't love sweating either. So, <laughs> which is it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a delicate balance. It's a delicate balance for sure. Well, I am very, very excited to talk about who you brought today. Eve's a very compelling story. But before we get into it, I'm just curious where you both lie on like the singing scale. Like, how do you rate yourself? Do you enjoy singing? Did you ever think you were going to be a singer? Samantha, do you want to
3: go?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. As our listeners pretty much know, I do love to just randomly sing. Uh, Do Mm -hmm. I think I'm great at it? No. Do I think I can hit a tune? And am I okay with uh, harmonizing? Yes. That's how I would keep it. Did I think I could be a star? Once upon a time. Especially when, you know, Whitney came out with her Bodyguard soundtrack. I'm like, yeah, I definitely could hit these notes. By the way, I could not. I could not. (laughs) Uh, But I really wanted to try at that point in time um, and had those small dreams. of like, maybe I could be a singer. At least I could do the harmony, the background vocals. But that's about it. And yeah, (laughs) now that I'm getting older, I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, I definitely couldn't do that.
3: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think singers are really amazing. And I'm honestly just so often astonished at how many people can sing, but it's not their careers, but like can like blow people out of the water when it comes to singing. Yeah. I am not one of those people. I took chorus for about a year or something like that in elementary school. And I honestly have no idea why I was in it. I think it was probably just because my mom put me in it, but I wasn't particularly great at singing. And I think that I can hold a note decently well, but I I know that I don't have it because I've heard people, plenty of people who have it, and I ain't got whatever that is. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I sing in the shower. I sing along with songs. Like, I sing in the car. I love singing. Like, it feels great. It feels expressive, and I like the way it makes me feel. And sometimes I will even record myself singing and listen back to it and say, how do I sound like I think I sound? Because I'm always very curious because like I feel like I sound okay, but do I really? Mm. So I'll do that sometimes. And I'm like, oh, okay. Mm. That's how I feel about it. It's basically <laughs> yeah. just, oh, okay. And then I move on. So, no, definitely not any significant or noteworthy history of singing in my life.
0: <laughs> I love that. Uh, I too, I like singing like in the car around the house. I love a good karaoke. Um, I don't think I'm very good, but I have fun. Uh, I used to think I I used to think when I was a kid that I was a good singer. And I would sing in the shower and be like, oh, this melodious voice. <laughs> now I don't think that. So I'm wondering if that's a shift in confidence or like perception. Like when I was a kid, I was like, oh yeah, I'm good. And now I'm like, let's temper the truth. <laughs> temper with the truth. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I but I never... I used to think I could be like a big-time actor. I never thought I could be a singer. There was never a moment where I was like, I'm that good. But I did. I was jealous of it. I was really jealous Mm -hmm. of people who could sing. And I had friends who could just, yeah, they would nail it. And they made it look so easy. Mm -hmm. Like, why can't I do that? (laughs) It's a talent. It's a skill. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I do enjoy it. Well, all right. Now that we've got our past and experiences out of the
3: way, Who did you bring for us to
0: discuss today, Eve?
3: Today we will be talking about Sissy Aretta Jones. And that's why we were talking about singing, because she was an amazing singer. And even so, there were still a lot of people who criticized the way she sang or her ability in singing. But she was the first Black American woman to headline a concert at Carnegie Hall. So we'll be going through her history. It was long, it lasted many decades, and it was very storied. And she traveled a lot, she toured a lot. So I'm excited to talk about her today. She is like so many of the people we talk about on other episodes of Female First, a person whose popularity or interest has waned over the years, posthumously after her death. During the time she was alive, she had a lot, a lot of fame in many places around the world. But her notoriety after she died did wane a little bit, and then she came back into the view um, of the mainstream in certain ways. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about her and share her story with everyone.
0: Yes, yes. Um, we're very excited to to hear it too. And I'm glad uh, she's getting more attention lately, because it was just, she did so much, and it was just kind of tragic that yes disappeared, and you can't find any recordings yeah, of her. Um, so I'm glad people are, some people have been just fighting for so long, like, do not forget this person, do mm-hmm. not forget what she did. And I'm glad more and more people are, like, catching on and hearing this story. And
3: you have brought it to share even more, so. Yeah. It makes me happy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, shout out to all the biographers who do the hard work of making sure that these people's names stay in people's minds and in people's hearts over the years. So really grateful for all, all of them, obviously. So, yeah, we'll get into her story. She was born Matilda Cicieretta Joyner in Portsmouth, Virginia, not long after the end of the Civil War in 1868 or 69. She was the oldest of three children born to her parents, but her siblings died when they were very young. Her father was Jeremiah Malachi Joyner, and he was born into slavery in North Carolina. And when she was born, he was a carpenter and a pastor, as well as a choir leader at a church. Her mother was named Henrietta, and she did laundry, and she sang in the choir as well. And she was also from North Carolina. In her early life, Aretta was called Matilda, her first name, and also called Sissy. And they moved to Providence, Rhode Island, to the east side of the city. Not long after they moved to Providence, though, Henrietta and Jeremiah did stop living together. Henrietta was played a huge role in Ciciretta's upbringing and they made money by doing laundry and she would iron in her home and around 1889 the Cicireta's parents divorced but she was already singing at a young age she sang at school and at work and as a teenager she began attending the Providence Academy of Music pretty early on she married David Richard Jones who was a hotel porter that was 1883 when they married and marriage records said that she was 18 and he was 24, but they were likely both a few years younger than that. And in April of 1884, their daughter Mabel was born. So she, Sissioretta began singing at more church concerts and performing with groups here and there. In 1885, she performed with Flora Batson, who's another big name in the singing community. She was a well-known black concert singer. And Jones also sang a solo in a play featuring Black actor John A. Arno as King Richard III that year. And later that year, it was kind of a big deal when she sang in a concert at the Providence Music Hall starring Marie Selica. Or Selica. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that part of her name, but she was a Black vocalist. And she also had a first. She was the first Black artist to sing at the White House. But sadly, Jones's daughter, Mabel, did die when she was two years old, which had an emotional toll on her and affected how she showed up for her career. But she did go back to singing and she performed more with Flora Batson. And she studied, may have studied either at the Boston Conservatory of Music or the New England Conservatory of Music, but it does seem like she studied in Boston in the late 1880s. So she had a concert tour starting in early 1888 for cities in the New England area. And she signed a contract with a management firm called Abbey Shuffle and Grau. I feel like my German is my German is not the best, so please forgive me for that. She went on a tour of the Caribbean and South America with a company of Black American singers called the Tennessee Jubilee Singers. So this is, she's still very young, but she's already doing a lot of traveling with her singing career and getting really invested, involved in it, and working with a lot of different people. Um, and it's unclear who was the the very first person to call her this, but several newspapers did refer to her as Black Patti. And those newspapers said that her managers called her Black Patti, which... Um, I wasn't there, but Mm -hmm. to have my manager call me by some weird personification of somebody else, I just feel like that's very strange in practice, but Mm -hmm. apparently that's what those newspapers said. This was a reference to Adelina Patti, who was a really popular opera singer in the 19th century, and they called Jones that for the rest of her career. You'll see this referred to in articles about her and in advertisements about the work that she was doing, her being called the Black Patti, and she even referred to herself as that. But she did say that she didn't care for the moniker. Um, she said in the Detroit Evening News, quote, I am afraid people will think I consider myself the equal of Patti herself. I assure you, I do not think so, but I have a voice and I am striving to win the favor of the public by honest merit and hard work. Perhaps someday I may be as great in my way, but that is a long way ahead, a long way ahead." So she was pretty gracious about that back then, even though she's commented on that moniker more later in life and was just like, that's not for me. I didn't put that on myself, but I got it. But she seemed to accept it pretty gracefully, even though we've talked about before on female first, my disdain for this weird, uh, using these, these names to refer to somebody else of a different race to say you're of this race. But yeah so it was it was something that was attached to her and that lasted and worked well for branding so um, we know how important that is. Mm. So, some other critics didn't care for the name either, and that was for various reasons, like some of it was more from the direction that she was coming from like i don't I don't need that I don't need this com- weird comparison to another race, but some people also thought that she didn't measure up to Adelina Patti or there was no need to draw those comparisons or even that like. She wasn't Black, so why would we call her Black? She's quote-unquote mulatto, some would say. So there are various reasons people thought this, but the Black potty is one thing that people called her. So she and her husband, along with the company, went to Jamaica in August of 1888 as the first stop on their six-month tour. They played in Panama, Barbados, Trinidad, what was then British Guiana, Antigua, and St. Kitts, and other places. And the audiences of these shows were mixed when it came to race. And reportedly, the manager made some somewhere around $4,000 off of the tour. And minstrel shows were a thing at this time associated with blackface and this um, kind of uh, silly performance on stage, um, caricatures and, and things like that. But she did perform in minstrel shows sometimes. Her, her first was probably in 1889. By that point, her husband, David, was helping move her career for a lot as her manager. But yeah, so he 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 will come up over the years as being involved in the work that she did, booking her shows, going with her on tours, although that relationship did sour, the personal relationship as well as that professional relationship. And Cici Retta, as part of another troupe, later went back to the Caribbean and to South America, visiting places like Haiti, Cuba, Grenada, and St. Thomas. But this time was a little bit different than the other time, Um, Her husband and a Black woman who was a former newspaper reporter named Florence Williams managed the tour. Um, Reports of their shows overseas were sent back to the States and that helped grow her reputation. And she talked about how she had gotten all of these gifts from people around the world and the countries that she visited. So this one thing that comes up in her story a lot is a tiara that she got with diamonds in it. She got money, she got gold medals and various gems. And I You can, although we don't have recordings of her, everybody can go look at pictures of her online. They do exist, many of them. And they're really fun to look at because she looks very grand. She looks very regal in a lot of the pictures because she's wearing these long flowing gowns and dramatic capes. And... in. She you can also see her wearing all of her medals, which is it feels like the ultimate flex to me for her <laughs> to put all of her medals on her chest and take a picture like that. But it's just reflective of this part of her history that we're reading about and learning about and hearing like she got all of these medals, which can sound very like we're trying to impress a certain thing upon her biography that wasn't necessarily there. But she really did get these medals and she showed that she got these medals and there's actual documentation of that that we can see today. So I think that's pretty cool. But anyway, all of this happened by the time she was in her early 20s, just her context. So she was doing a lot and going a lot of places, clearly working very
1: hard. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers
2: Because golden hour is more than just time, it's whenever you want to savor amazing. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more. That's KimCrawfordWines.com to find Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation
0: Imports, Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some
2: things in life should be boring, like banking.
3: In 1892, she sang at the White House for President Benjamin Harrison, and she reportedly sang at the White House for later presidents as well. That same year, she was in an event called the Grand Negro Jubilee at Madison Square Garden. It was in a large venue. It had these mixed-race audiences, and she appeared as this prima donna in the show, and she garnered a lot of U.S. attention for it. She later said about this appearance, quote, I woke up famous after singing at the garden and didn't know it. So this clearly was a pivotal point in her story, in her becoming this little kind of larger than life figure that she became. So in June, she and her husband signed a contract with a manager named James B. Pond." So that contract was supposed to be lucrative, paying her more than $6,000 a year, which would be around $200,000 today. So that is obviously a large sum of money for then and for today, like and she was one of the highest paid entertainers of her time, a black Black American uh, of Black Americans. So that same month she was featured as a soprano in an all black performance at Carnegie Hall. Um, and there are a lot of quotes about her voice. Obviously, we can't hear it, and there's only so much that we can get out of words trying to represent what her voice sounded like. But a lot of those quotes do tend to mention how great her enunciation was, Like even if those... People who were writing about her were hating on her and didn't really care for her performance. They were like, oh, her enunciation was really great. And some of them would compare her voice to angels and birds, which is an obvious comparison (laughs) because the song Birds exists. So it makes sense. Um, But yeah, so um, they also mentioned her manner and speaking to people. They would say things like she's very lovely and that she is a good conversationalist, so apparently people did take pretty well to her demeanor outside of the stage, but that makes sense as well because it's all fitting as part of the work that she was doing and the demeanor that she was expected to carry in front of these large audiences at the time. Um, And I can give you a quote, for instance, about what one person said from the Saratoga Union Quote, there is neither brass in her notes nor thickness in her phrasing. Her enunciation is also perfect. The exquisite crispness with which she executes complicated scales in rapid time delighted it all. With all she sings intelligently, without affectation, and with much feeling. These newspaper articles talked about her appearance as well, but often... They had this air of being surprised that she was actually great at her craft, even though not every person who was a critic of hers said that, you know, she was good at her craft. Um, Some people did say she has natural talent, but, you know, the craft ain't so much there. She could do with more professional schooling, more training and things like that. They would also do this thing where they were like, "Oh wow, i I wasn't necessarily expecting that. I was just expecting her as like as if her her race would precede her the work that she was doing. like it was the race was the reason that she had this grand reputation that would precede her. um, and they would do the same thing that a lot of media does today with women and with black women comparing her to other female singers, like Flora Batson, for instance." But she was still well-received in a lot of these places, and she was making money. And she was able to support herself through her work that way and doing what she loved in terms of concert singing. So her manager, James Pond, set her up to go on a tour with a troupe of white European musicians. That meant that at the same time as they would attract an audience who wanted to see white musicians, but they would also choose to perform on stage with her, which is something that some white musicians didn't want to do, um, white Americans particularly. Um, and under Pond, she was mostly performing for white audiences, which up until that point, her audiences were mostly black. So, She sang with a bunch of different people, like it would be an exhaustive list to go through all of the concerts that she did. It was just so many over the years and with so many people. But she would continue to do voice lessons. Um, For years, she did them with Luisa Capiani, who was a voice teacher from Austria and lived in New York City. So musician and composer Will Marion Cook, he wanted to put on uh, a Black opera called Scenes from Uncle Tom's Cabin at... The Chicago World's Fair, which was also known as the Columbian Exposition. Spoiler alert, that did not happen, that performance didn't happen. Um, Jones did sing one night at the exposition, though. Either way, there was a benefit concert at Carnegie Music Hall, and Ciceretta headlined that concert, which marked the first time that Black Americans played in the main hall at Carnegie, and there in was Ciceretta's first. There, there there wasn't much known commentary from Ciciretta on how she felt about the racial climate in the United States. There was some. She talked about in Europe how she felt like she didn't have to go through and black people didn't go through as much there as they did in the United States and saying that there wasn't as much racism there. She did comment on things like uh, when she how she thought it was unreasonable At these segregated shows where black people would be confined to the gallery and white people were able to sit in the orchestra, even if that didn't really make sense because there were all these seats in the orchestra while the gallery was packed and they were having to turn people away from that. And also along the way, things would happen even when they were on their tours outside of the United States of where they had difficulties finding hotels and getting turned around from hotels when she was having to hop from place to place um, and stay in hotels along the way. But either way, David booked concerts for her, and Pond booked concerts for her. <laughs> and at a certain point, there was controversy over that because when David booked some contracts, concerts for Ciceretta, Pond said that they had violated their contract. So he sued them. And he even said that Ciceretta refused to sing the concerts that he booked. And they had a bunch of back and forth over that. There was a whole court case with a lot of dealings. And Ciceretta wanted damages of $5,000, saying that nobody had been abiding by this contract that they had initially agreed to in the first place. Like, that was basically null and void after a certain point. And an initial ruling did go into her favor, her and David's favor. But then another one right after that went into Pond's favor with a different judge. and. David couldn't book Sissy Redditor to sing at that point, and gigs could only be booked under Pond's management. The judge basically deemed her ungrateful um, for all that Pond had done for her hugely successful career, and yeah, But so there was this contention between her and her manager over this point. And Pond did stop being her manager in mid-1894 anyway, and Rudolph Vogel would soon manage her for the rest of her career, not long after that. So her career continued to be successful, but that was kind of a contentious split between her and a person who seemingly did have played a huge role in her growing into this large name that she was. So that's pretty complicated, but... Yeah, she toured Europe for most of 1895. She went to places like Germany, England, France, and Italy. And at a certain point, she began appearing in more vaudeville shows. When she got to the U back to the U.S., there weren't as many concert opportunities for her at this point. And this <laughs> enigma and mystery around black prima donnas at that point was kind of fading. But she moved into a career as the star of the Black Patty Troubadours. Their shows were a mix of comedy, of vaudeville, opera, and burlesque. And they would sing, quote-unquote, coon songs, which was a thing at the time, um, and have all these skits as part of this super long, hours-long show. And then Ciceretta would close them out with this grand operatic performance and that lasted for a long time um a, a super long time and in 1898 like i alluded to earlier she did file from for a divorce from david saying that he neglected to support her he was cruel to her and he had quote unquote continued drunkenness and she wanted her old last name back she wanted joiner back and they granted her that though she did continue to use Jones in her stage name, and the Black Patti Troubadours eventually changed their name to the Black Patti Musical Comedy Company, but that didn't last too long, and they broke up in 1915. She had a a lot of travels over her life and did a bunch of shows while she was part of it would be impossible to condense her story with the the troubadours into such a short space because she did so many shows. A lot of them were these one-off nights. Sometimes she would do week-long engagements in places. She went everywhere. She was in San Francisco. She was in Atlanta. She was in the Northeast. She was all of these places that she would tour with them and got good reception, got different positive and negative reviews in the press. And a lot of deaths within the troubadours, because these were these were huge performances with a lot of people in them, dozens of people. Um, so she was also surrounded by things like that, drama with people who wanted certain kinds of ownership and credit over things that were happening in the show, and a split between the managers who were over the troubadours and them going their own separate ways. So all of those things that you would expect with something involving so many people and is an artistic endeavor and happens in so many different places and mind you is occurring while all of these turbulent and like um just really dramatic things are happening in the United States and in the world wars are happening a lot of technological advancement like cars being created um planes, you know, all of these things are happening while she is going through all of this. So she did end up returning to Providence and taking care of her mother after that split with the Troubadours. Her mother was sick. Um, There was a period when, toward the end of her career with the Troubadours, when she got ill as well. After she returned to Providence, she stopped performing on stage and she ended up selling a lot of her jewelry and property to support herself. She died in 1933. And I think her story is very fascinating in terms of what she was able to do at that time and how, conf- how much confidence she had. And I really wish that I could hear her voice just so I could like hear what everyone else was hearing at the time and were so impressed by and that so many people had opinions about. But it does feel like her story is so bittersweet because she there's this feeling of she didn't leave this world with much, but that she left it with a lot. Um, I don't know her character personally, but from the way it's described, it seems like at the end of her life, she was the same as she was throughout the rest of her life. And so she had this grand experience where she was invited and welcomed by all these dignitaries and performed with all these high, highfalutin people and was in circles of people um, who were notable when it came to abolition. Um, so some civil rights leaders, um, people like uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, so huge artists, um, so people who were super culturally relevant and did a lot of things that we remember them for, but also all of the quote-unquote normal people who were in the audience and watching her and seeing her rise to stardom and all of these things that she was doing and her being on all these trains and being the star of the show. It seems like such a a glamorous life in such a difficult time. I just have a lot of complicated feelings around it. Because she seemed to be characterized as this person at the end of her life who was a lot more mellow and calmer, like keeping things a lot more low-key at the end of her life than she did before. Like she was just, she. the neighborhood kids knew her and, and would come over and artists would visit her home and she would be in her garden and she was respected a little bit, well, respected and feared a little bit. <laughs> and, um, but also the modest and economics for the way that her money was at the time, all the savings that she had burned through and having to sell these things and make deals with people to be able to afford things and take care of her mother. And she died not long after her mother died, actually. So, yeah, it's, it leaves me with this very bittersweet feeling of this very, this life full of riches in so many ways that didn't necessarily end in riches, but I'm hesitant to say like she died in poverty because she didn't die in poverty. She lived a life of wealth in so many ways that are more than just the tangible ways that are related to like her monetary things, her belongings and the the things that, you know, one could put their hands on and say that that has a certain value. Like her life definitely had value outside of those things. And, you know, that's why I like, I am, you know, grateful to be able to share her story and share so many of these stories. Um, but a headstone wasn't put on her unmarked grave until 2018. And yeah, like like Annie said earlier, there are no, no no recordings of her singing and people are, you know, still hopeful that that will turn up one day because even though there was a, a Black Patti record label, she didn't really have anything to do with that. Uh, yeah, but that's her story. And I'm happy to share it.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines. Life is busy. There are so many things on your to-do list with so little time to do them. And you're always thinking about others' needs before thinking of your own. Trust me, we understand.
2: Because golden hour is more than just time, it's whenever you want to savor amazing. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more. That's KimCrawfordWines.com to find Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports,
0: Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some
2: things in life should be boring, like banking.
0: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated, PNC Bank, a National Association member FDIC. Um, we're happy as always that you brought it to us and you did all this work and you put it together in such a great way. Uh said, it is—it's an amazing, amazing story. Um. And there's so much, like you said, like this is a condensed thing. But there's so much that she did that was fascinating, and it's like hard to. I, I kept finding all these other rabbit holes I wanted to go down. Like, oh, I want to hear more about this. I learn more about this in her life um, and all of her accomplishments. And then I don't know when I was reading it. I, I'm glad you put you you had you shared your conflicting feelings around it because I was like, wow, she. Was buried in an unmarked grave after all of this, yeah. and it was 2018. I think it was a GoFundMe campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, it took that long when she did have this big of an impact, and people did know her. That just sort of like have have to have those people fighting for you to still be remembered and still be heard. And I'm glad, as I said at the top, I'm glad people have been doing that um, for a long time and continue to do so. And I. I'm very happy again, Eves, that you you shared that story and now our listeners maybe can share that story and because it's one worth being
2: told. Right. Maybe someone can find a recording. I'm thinking maybe somewhere in Europe yes. has a hidden recording of her grand tour <laughs> now that has to be
0: discovered. The HBO miniseries you keep bringing up. Samantha yeah. would be the search for the lost recording. Yes. I would love it.
2: That's <laughs> <Yeah>. the beginning.
0: <laughs> I would love it too. Because I that was I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear your voice. No, yeah. I read you couldn't yeah. find it anywhere. I was like,
2: no. That's even more haunting. <laughs> it's a cruel joke. Mm-hmm. It really is. I know that's one of the uh, biographers like that's the one wish
0: mm-hmm. that they
2: had. And yeah, that's so haunting to know that this amazing uh performances out there that was a showstopper literally people were just awed and would sit there for hours to listen to this and we can't hear it oh no
3: (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah it's like it's all of that that goodness of hearing her voice has to be confined to that time even though thousands of people heard her voice it's like we'll never get to but that's yeah, the way it is sometimes. It well, is. hopefully we will, but right now maybe, at this moment. Maybe.
2: One person out there. It um, kind of also takes the lesson of uh, taking people for granted and not realizing the legend that is happening at that point in time, not, not realizing that and mm-hmm. not recognizing what she was doing, which was just doing something that she loved and was really, really, really well-trained at and good at and talented in um, and did a lot of work to be in that field. Um, and it makes me sad that we don't get to hear that. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, you know, uh, some of the treatment as the conflict as you have. And like seeing, glad to see that she continued to thrive as in, I guess, I'm thinking, in being able to be in her own privacy and to do what she needed to do. But at the same time, all of the harshness that she had to deal with, especially in the United States, you know, it's like, yeah, we did this to ourselves. So we punished, like we're punished because we couldn't recognize how amazing this was. And then those, the evils behind, which is kind of familiar today of like the recording industry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's kind of like comes back to play and you're like, yeah, this is what happens when things like this are uh, neglected, I guess. Mm
3: -hmm. It does feel uh, icky to think about another place in which a lot of these conflicting feelings come up for me is in how much she worked, And up to, I think it was around 45 weeks out of the year, she would be on tour with these troubadours. Night after night after night after night, you know, using her physical body. Another part of this is that this was a very, it's singing, but it's a very physical thing that from her moving from one place to the other, you know, imagining the amount of sleep that she was able to get, you know, how, how she had to maintain her health. But at the same time, her health was so taxed because of the work that she did. And just thinking about how many years of consistent grind that she had to go through and also so much of the loss that she was having to deal with when it came to her her children, her siblings, um, her mother who died not long before her. And it feels like a lot of weight for one person. But at the same time, she had so much beauty in her life as as well um, that offered another narrative, you know, beyond the tragedy in her life. But I just think about that, too, in terms of she was so, so anomalous for the time as a Black woman who achieved the kind of success that she did in concert singing, even though she never did opera because we didn't really touch on that. But like, opera was and is can be such a very white space And she didn't have access to that in many ways. But yeah, and and how much she had to grind and and push herself to these kinds of limits during that time. It just, I, I think about that in terms of what people do today and what musicians and artists do today as well. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of sacrifices were made for sure. Whenever we
0: get to that, because I feel like we've been talking a lot about celebrity in the past, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Whenever we do that one about privacy and celebrity and kind of the demands on artists and the entitlement we feel a lot of times around artists. can talk on this, talk about this some more. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Eve. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it was a pleasure, as always, to have you. Thank you so much um, for coming on. Where can the good listeners find
3: you, Eves? Y'all can find me on Instagram at notapologizing. I'm on Twitter at Eves Jeffcoat, or you can just go to my website, evesjeffcoat.com, and get the links to all of those things. Yes,
0: um, and you should do that if you haven't done it already. You can also find her on this very show, um, <laughs> which are always excellent <laughs> oh, <yeah>. segments. <laughs> oh, yes. This thing I am doing oh, yeah. currently. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Uh, and listeners, if you would like to reach out to us, you can. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I've Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina. Thank you, Christina. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or you listen to your favorite shows.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines.